0: Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. In my home for this in-person podcast is my friend, Drew Young. Welcome to the podcast, Drew. Hey, thanks for having me. We're going to talk about Drew's book um, that's coming out. It's called The Meaning of Your Mission, Lessons and Principles to Know You Are Enough. Um, It has a foreword by Hank Smith, Jane Clayson Johnson has a supportive quote in the book, and It's basically Drew's story about spending 62 days in the MTC and then coming early, home early, because of anxiety and depression. And the following 18 months that were really difficult as he dealt with this and moved forward in his life. And now he's felt impressed to write this book that I encourage all of our listeners to read and share with others as he talks about his journey to overcome anxiety and depression, something he's still working on five years later. This podcast, I think, will be really helpful for those of you like me that have some of this in our lives and need stories from other people. I think it'll be helpful for you that are trying to help others. And those of you that are sensitive to our culture and sometimes how culturally we make it harder for people um, to feel like they fully belong. In this example, someone who came home early from their mission. As background drew Um, grew up in New Canaan, Connecticut, and then moved to Utah, went to Brighton High School, a high school that's very close to where I live. We have a lot of common friends, graduated in 2014, and then got a call to the Baltic Mission in 2015. So that was about five years ago. Drew is married um, two years ago, has a daughter, um, currently works for Franklin Covey as a PR manager, and um, really hopes to um, become an author and a speaker as he moved forward in his education and also in his um, work expertise. Um, is that a fair introduction, Drew? It's perfect. Um, it's great. Really glad to have you here. I've actually had some tears in my eyes. Just the 14 <laughs> or 15 minutes we visited ahead of time for this good man and um, bravely sharing his story. We said a prayer before we started and just hope as the podcast podcast host here that I get out of the way. <laughs> um, and let Drew do the talking. Talk about um, anything you just. Why don't you tell people about the book and where to get it? Just sort of the timing of when it'll be out, where to get it. Your own website. We'll do that at the end, also, Drew. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Well, thank you very much for the platform. I'm I'm extremely grateful for the opportunity. Uh, the book I wrote the book, um, you know, over the last four or five years, and with gratitude, um, got someone to like it enough to, to consider publishing it and it'll be published July 14th. Uh, it's available for pre-order now on my website, which is drewbyoung.com and I'm just extremely grateful for the opportunity that I had to write it and to share my story and my journey with, you know, those that would consider reading it.
0: So, um, we appreciate our friends at Cedar Fort. I believe they're the publisher. Yes. Um, that's the same publisher that's publishing a book I'm writing that listeners are aware of that's coming out after Drew's in September. Um, but we're both grateful for our friends at Cedar Fort who are willing to publish kind of vulnerable stories so that we can do better. Talk about, pick, let's talk a little bit about just life before your mission. Was it easy or were there difficult times? in your life before your mission, Drew?
1: I think as a, a child growing up in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, there's there's great moments, and there's, there's moments that uh, obviously are a little more challenging than, than others. Uh, like you mentioned, I grew up in New Canaan, Connecticut, um, the youngest of eight kids. Uh, so, you know, I had a lot of uh, older brothers and sisters to hang out with. Uh, but when I was 12, my dad's job relocated him back... To Utah, I was born in Utah, moved to Connecticut when I was three, then at 12, moved back to Utah, and I had struggled with separation anxiety as a child, uh, just basically, you know, couldn't be away from my mom for, you know, long periods of time, who knows why, I don't know to this day, it's just something that I had, and moving back to Utah when I was 12, I, I had a, an extreme bout with it that lasted about three years. And obviously didn't know that at the time that it would last that long. Um, but we moved in the summer before my, uh, seventh grade year of school. And because, uh, it had gotten to a certain extent where, you know, we didn't know if I could, you know, manage a full day at school and, you know, make new friends, et cetera, my parents and I, you know, made the mutual decision that homeschooling would probably be the best route. And so seventh, eighth, and ninth grade, I was homeschooled due to separation anxiety. And I think those were the, the kind of the crucible years for me, um, in terms of difficulty and challenges. I was bullied pretty extensively, um, by kids in my neighborhood who, you know, were in, you know, deacons and teachers quorums and, you know, they would, you know, throw me to the ground and and try and break my glasses, you know, all these different things that, um, you know, leaders will look at and say, Oh, boys will be boys. But to me, it was something that really interrupted my, my self-esteem, my, my self-worth. Um, I got into some bad habits that, you know, I tried to numb the pain with temporarily. And obviously it's just a temporary fix. Um, but I really lacked that that connection that comes with having a good group of friends. And so I spent a lot of those years just kind of cooped up in you know, my bedroom and my house and tried to, to make the most of it. And, and luckily, you know, thanks to, thanks to the help of the Lord, honestly, I was able to looking back now be sustained during that time and forgiven and, um, was able to make it out of those, those tough years of, of bullying and teasing. And, uh, went back to high school, uh, in 10th grade, made really good friends. Didn't have, um, any struggles with separation anxiety and junior and senior year, you know, you're, you're working things out, you're figuring out, you know, if you want to go to school, you want to go on a mission. And luckily I had a really good group of friends that we all kind of inspired each other and led each other to the path of repentance. And then, you know, submitting our mission papers and, uh, so that's kind of how the senior year went, uh, the age change had happened. So around, you know, February, March, um, months, everyone started, you know, submitting their mission papers. And I told my dad, I said, I want to submit my mission papers. I want to go on a mission with all my friends, you know, when they go. And he said, well, because you've had these challenges, you know, with anxiety, do you think it's right to just jump right into it? You know, should we, should we test the waters a little bit? And of course, I didn't want to do that because, you know, it'd been years since I had experienced it and I was feeling really good about where I was, but, you know, we fasted and prayed about it and mutually came to the decision to go to a semester of school first to kind of test myself if I could live away from home. And so I went to a semester at BYU, Idaho. My friends left for their missions. I went to school and uh, received my mission call during that time, as you mentioned, to serve in the Baltic mission, Estonian speaking um which was just a crazy experience to receive that call to serve but um yeah i i finished that semester at college loved it came home and and got ready to go to the mtc a couple of weeks later
0: thanks for um sharing that segment drew i you talked about something that we've never talked about on this podcast which was separation anxiety if i use the right term mm-hmm. and i've been aware of that at times with young men in our ward or circle and, and the connection with their mom. And I think I've always sort of just said man up in my brain Yeah, um, that that's like just a weakness. But, you know, as I'm hearing everybody's stories, what a terrible thing for me to think. Cause obviously a 15, 14, 13 year old young man does not want to, you know, would love to be like all the other boys and not sort of in a, and not have that feeling. Cause at some level in his brain, he recognizes this is how I'm feeling is not how the other boys are feeling. And then the shame and the guilt and sort of just, just feeling bad for how you actually feel. Right. And I also like where you said, you know, we shouldn't just let boys be boys. Um, I love you were honest about the impact on you um, as we let boys be boys. Hmm. And that's, you know, we need to do better. Yeah,
1: I agree. I'm, I, uh, I think there's room for improvement, obviously. And I'm grateful that I was able to go through it so that I can, you know, teach my kids and the upcoming generation to be kind. Um, there's a lot of, you know, it seems like there's almost, a a power that comes from, you know, being the toughest, being the bully. Um, and in a sense, people look up to the bullies either because they're scared of them or they want to be like them in a sense, but I'm here to tell you that that's not where, you know, strength comes from and it's more important to be kind and to pull others up, not push others down. And so I'm grateful that I had that experience, that I could live that and and teach that.
0: Give one or two words of advice to parents that have a child Um, experiencing separation anxiety, and to any young people that might be listening, that that's part of their journey?
1: Absolutely. Well, to parents, I would just kind of ring the bell of caution of, especially in the younger years when kids are so malleable, um, when they're so vulnerable, especially, you know, those junior junior high school years, it's really tough to make a name for yourself. It's really tough to, you know, try and be one of the popular kids or, you know, try and do something that, you know, is a little out of your comfort zone. And I think a lot of parents are, are distant from that in a sense, either because they're so far removed, you know, age-wise or just because they're not as involved in their children's lives due to, you know, different responsibilities and work and, you know, taking care of the home. And so, I would really just try to sympathize with your child. I know that a lot of parents can't relate to separation anxiety, some can, um, but if you yourself can't relate to it, but you have a child that's going through it, don't um don't be condescending, don't you know tell them to toughen up or to you know don't be such a baby, you know this is why you know we're doing this, that, and the other. but really try to get on their level uh because the child doesn't want to deal with it. they want to be like you said, normal, like all the other kids, but this is just something that they're struggling with, um, biologically. And so
0: biologically, what a great word,
1: right? Yeah. I mean, they, they can't control it. Um, and so I would just recommend to, you know, get close to your child, talk with them, tell them that you love them, that you're here for them, that, you know, you'll be their friend until they can make new friends. And even if that's not, you know, the best, you know, the number one option, it'll be good enough until they grow out of it or until they have new experiences to deal with it. Um, and then your second point for those listening that may be experiencing that right now, I would just recommend to them to just keep doing what you're doing. Um, I know personally, it's really difficult to feel like you feel, um, but I'm confident that as you keep working on yourself, um, grow yourself personally, grow your mind, grow your body. Um, do things that you love to do, draw, um, go for walks, learn a sport, learn a craft, do something that you yourself can be proud of so that when you start to, you know, get more friends, when you start to be more comfortable socially or things like that, that you're already one step ahead of the game. You already have those skills that you've, you know, learned to cultivate while you've been on your own.
0: Great advice. I want to go back in my mind and be kinder to the scouts that after one night of scout camp came home or, um, the 11, 12, 13, 14 year olds, that's when I first sort of noticed it. And I probably in my mind wasn't very kind. Um, but I love the word you use biology and I love the positive advice you gave to others working on that. Thank you. Talk
1: about, don't um, beat yourself up. <laughs> <I love laughs> we that. all go through certain times.
0: Um, before we went live, um, drew Told me, just like he knows it, like the back of the hand. He spent twenty-two days in the uh, sixty-two days in the MTC. I kind of like the way you know that number, <laughs> and you just volunteered it with no shame. Like it's just your number. Yeah. Um, so talk to us about going to the MTC. I assume in Provo, but mm-hmm. let us know where you were and just that journey, that sixty-two day journey, and that led that ended with you coming home.
1: Be happy to. So. Uh received my call to serve and reported to the Pro MTC on January 28th, 2015. And I guess I was one of the older missionaries. I was 19. So, you know, at that, at that point, I guess I was one of the older missionaries there. And I had it in the back of my mind, you know, okay, this, you know, this anxiety could come back. But, you know, you have the the feeling of, you know, the Lord qualifies whom he calls. Um, and you want to fulfill this responsibility, this duty that has been placed upon you, you know, since birth, especially as a young man in the church, uh, you serve a mission when you're 18, 19, that's just what you do. And you don't come home early because, you know, you just don't, you know, you, you finish the call and you finish your service to the Lord. And, um, I'm, I'm positive that, you know, young women feel that way too. If they're going to serve a mission, you know, the expectation is a little bit different for them, but they also feel, you know, the need to, to finish, the need to fulfill that calling um, for 18 months. And so going into the MTC, I, I wanted to be confident. I wanted to be strong. Uh, and, you know, it's it's a really interesting transition from civilian life to missionary life. And in the book, I kind of talk about it in a way that I haven't heard it talked about before. I really try to get into the nitty gritty details of, you know, what happens your first day in the MTC? What happens the first three hours in the MTC? You get in, um, you know, you have someone pick you up on the curb, you kind of walk through the doors and you get your, you know, your name tag and your medical form and your name, you know, your name badge. Um. And it's an amazing experience to kind of put that, you know, on your jacket, on your, you know, your shirt, because that's when you become, you know, you wear the mantle of full-time representative of Jesus Christ. And that was my favorite part of the MTC, to be honest, was the first, you know, two minutes. And then after that, you kind of go through the bookstore and you get the materials that you're gonna be using throughout your MTC stay. And depending on which language you speak you know, you'll either have, you know, two or three things, or you'll have, you know, 12 or 14 things. For me, it was on the heavier side, because I was learning such a foreign language. So there were guidebooks, there were vocabulary guides, there was a dictionary, there was, you know, a triple combination, it was all this stuff. And then you uh, proceed to go to um, one of the buildings where you're going to be, you know, learning, and you're going to be studying the language and having your lessons for gosh, you know, 10, 12 hours a day, you know, that's what, it's kind of boot camp in that sense where you're in your classroom, you know, with your companions and the teacher for, for a long time every day. And so, uh, that's when I met my companions, I two, which is unique, um, because there's not a lot of trios in the MTC. Um, but for me, there, you know, just happened to be that there were, there were two other elders serving beside me and then there were three sisters as well. And, uh, that's when it kind of, hit me, Oh, this is going to be a lot more difficult than I thought. Um, not because I hadn't prepared myself, but because I, I didn't know exactly what to expect. Um, you know, I'd read the book of Mormon. I'd prayed about serving a mission. I got all the answers that I was supposed to go, but I didn't know exactly what I was getting myself into. And so they sat us down and for, you know, three hours nonstop was just Estonian, Estonian language, you know, we couldn't ask to go to the restroom in English. We had to you know ask an Estonian and they would talk to us and you know point at things and no one knew what was going on and um, it was so difficult because you're so acclimated to a certain way of life, and then you don't even know that it's going to change you know abruptly in you know within 20 minutes. So I just I'd, I'd give that advice to anyone who's preparing to serve foreign. Uh, just be prepared that, you know, there's going to be a lot of changes that first day, uh, especially language wise. So anyways, moving on from that, it was about the second week in the MTC that I started to notice that, you know, something was off. I was really stressed out about being exactly obedient. Um, I was in a, a district where the branch presidency created this rule called the 777 rule basically it was every P day we would email them and, you know, bless their hearts. We had to tell them the days that we were up at six 30, that we were in our rooms doing quiet time at ten fifteen, and were in bed lights out 10 30. And I think they created that just to kind of gauge, you know, what elders or what, you know, elders and sisters were, you know, being obedient, which ones weren't. But for me, it was, it became kind of a, a bat that hung over my head that was kind of ready to hit me just because it, it's not like I didn't want to have fun, but I really, um, wanted to be as obedient as I could. And one of the, uh, the phrases that kind of hung around the MTC culture and, and kind of hangs around the church culture is, obedience brings blessings, exact obedience brings miracles. And, you know, I see you cringe as I say that and I cringe as well, because that's basically saying, you know, perfection is the only way to see blessings in your life. And I felt that to my most inner core in the MTC that if I wasn't up at 530, you know, trying to read my scriptures, if I wasn't, you know, on my knees at 1015 every night praying, even if I was exhausted, even if I wanted to go you know, talk with another missionary, I couldn't deviate from that because I was trying to be exactly obedient. And I think that's what kind of kicked off this spiral of anxiety. Um, I started to gain weight that wasn't, you know, accustomed to me. I started a night, I wasn't sleeping well, you know, getting three, four hours a night. Um, I started to get really bad jitters, really bad, you know, panic attacks that I had never experienced in my life. It was just all new territory for me. So about week three, I went to see the therapist in the MTC. Um, she was an amazing woman, loved her so much um, to this day. I'm just grateful that she was an angel for me. And it was uh, the one hour every week where I could just kind of talk with someone who, who didn't judge me, who understood me. Um, I would kind of bring up these anxiety issues to my teachers and to my branch presidency. And, you know, heaven bless them. They didn't understand. Um, their mentality was... You need to pray more. Their mentality was, "Forget about yourself and go to work," um, which is so just painful to say. But I understand the the philosophy. But you can't you can't look at somebody who has a mental challenge or an emotional challenge and just say, "Forget about yourself and go to work." It's it doesn't work that way, and it actually demotivates them even more to feel like they're not enough and they're not going to be enough unless they absolutely forget themselves and really destroy their emotional skeleton by trying to serve others when they themselves aren't healthy. And so, um, the therapist was one who would really talk to me like I was a human being and who would say, you know, I, I understand what you're going through. Uh, but my, my condition continued to get worse. And like I mentioned, those kind of, you know, those symptoms, uh, were really tough for me. And so week five, I was there for nine weeks, week five, uh, I started to go see the doctor and he prescribing me medication for the first time in my life. So it was completely new territory for me. Um, and he gave me, you know, prescriptions said, you know, take this, you know, every, you know, so-and-so day or whatever. And I started taking medication not because I wanted to, but because I wanted to serve a mission and I didn't feel like I could unless I got this anxiety taken care of to a certain extent. And, you know, week six, the medication wasn't working. Um, it was making me more anxious. So we switched the medication week seven, wasn't working, switched it again. And to anyone who's taken medication, you know, that with most medications, you want about four to six weeks on the first one to see if, you know, if it works because your brain just, you know, it takes it in differently. And he was switching it up on me, you know, so often just because I think it was panic mode, okay, he doesn't, you know, he's not making any progress. We can't get him this medication in Europe. So, you know, we're gonna have to really try to, you know, make it work now. And it was at that time that the therapist took my kind of condition to the MTC committee, the medical committee. And basically what that was is, you know, a couple of district presidents get together with the head doctor and the therapist, and they, they gauge whether you're fit to serve, meaning if you're okay in terms of, um, emotionally and, you know, mentally and things like that. They, they came back, they said, you're fit to serve, you know, this anxiety will kind of dissipate, uh, with time and long story short i I know I'm going a little bit long here. Uh, week eight, uh, the week before we were going to head out to, you know, our respective countries, me and the missionaries in my zone. Uh, I went to see the therapist again, and it was the first time that we sat down together and she looked at me and she said, elder young, I finally get it. She said, you're not homesick. You're on the Titanic and you're going down fast. And it was the first time in the MTC where I understood the scripture, you know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And no matter how badly I wanted to serve, no matter how badly I wanted to fulfill my call, my flesh couldn't do it. My brain literally could not do it. And I think that a lot of people within the church and just in the culture at large, see mental illness as something that isn't legit because it can't be seen. There isn't a neck brace or a leg brace. And so you're fine. Um, When in actuality, it's, it's a lot more severe than that. And we need to come together and really try to understand those who go through these experiences because it really can um, have a huge impact on somebody's self-esteem and just their, their brain and their life and their biology as a whole. And so we, I had that experience with the therapist. She said, we need to take your case before the committee one more time, because I really think you do need to go home. And it was just a shock to me because, you know, you don't go home, but she said, you know, I think we need to go get you home and get better. And so long story short, they reviewed it one final time and they decided to send me home. And so we were going to all head out to Europe on a Monday and on Sunday, my day 62, my parents came and, and they picked me up. And, um, that's when the real journey began.
0: Wow. You are very good at articulating this, by the way, Mm. Drew, you have a gift of communication. That's part of your ability to talk about this space. Thank you. Um, I've, I love where you said the flesh is weak and separated the, the biology there. And I sometimes look at motivation and ability when I'm evaluating employees. And so when I see this flesh is weak, I almost go one step further. I don't know if you like this or not, but I sort of see, is that an ability problem or a motivation problem? Hmm. And it's not a motivation problem. So yeah, there's right. the flesh is weak here is not meaning you having a motivation problem, like right. you're sleeping in or you're... Yeah. You have plenty of motivation. There's not a motivation issue here. Right. It's just because of the biology, something outside of your control, which Mm -hmm. I would tie into the word ability a little bit. Yeah, definitely. You do not have the ability to do what you'd like to do here, and it's outside of your control. Absolutely. And I don't know how scary it was to hear that titanic analogy. I don't know if that was relieving that somebody got it or scary because you recognize just... How difficult a spot you're in. Any thoughts on that?
1: It was both. <laughs> I was I was grateful that somebody understood me enough to say that, and I was also terrified um, because... You'd just been compared to the Titanic. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I was shocked. I didn't want to face my family. I didn't want to face my parents saying I have to come home early. I didn't want to, you know, my three older brothers who served missions were all assistants, my dad was an assistant. It was just, not only was it a expectation, but it was just kind of like, there was, there were so many shoes to fill. And, you know, I didn't expect that, you know, those titles in my mission, but I expected to just be able to do it. And so it was a bit of a, a shock in the sense of this is getting real. Like I'm going to have to go home and I'm gonna have to face everybody whom, you know, two months ago, I said, see you in two, not two months, you know, two years. Uh, And so I think that was all starting to set in the gratitude of, okay, I got to go home. I don't have to be stressed every minute of every day. I can actually take time and get better versus the fear of, okay, now I actually have to face everybody who doesn't get it. And what am I going to do?
0: Talk about the next 18 months, Drew, because those were harder than the 62 days in the (laughs) MTC.
1: Well, I mean, I laugh a little bit just because looking back, it was such a, uh, just an insane, you know, melting pot of emotions. Uh, so I got back and, you know, I talk about in the book, the first Sunday back, because that's when you kind of face everybody. That first week I was able to kind of lie low because it was really only my parents my family and like the Bishop and the stake president who knew that I was home. And so I was getting ready to go to church that Sunday in my oversized suit that I was supposed to grow into, you know, over the next two years, I, honestly, I considered coming to church in crutches because I was so scared that people would look at me and just immediately judge me or come up to me and wonder what was going on. And I was just terrified to kind of face the members and face the community, um, not because they were—I thought they were judgmental, not because they, you know, they weren't kind to me, but just because you never want to—you never want to go up to somebody who you really respect, and in a sense, have to tell them that you couldn't fulfill that expectation. And I felt like I was doing that. And so that first Sunday back was really tough. There were a lot of members that came up and, you know, with well-intentioned questions and well-intentioned souls just kind of drove the dagger into me um, of, you know, questions like, oh my gosh, what happened? When are you going back out? You know, things like that, which, you know, you don't want to ask an early return missionary or anyone for that matter, who's going through a tough time, you know, insert your own narrative there of question to ask you always want to focus that question on how are you as a human being, you know, as a brother and sister in Christ, how are you doing? Is there anything that I can do for you? I think a lot of the time members of the church, you know, try and ask the who, what, where, when, why questions, either because they want to be in on the scoop or maybe they have a little bit of um, a knack for gossip, whatever it is. But Questions like that only lead to metaphorical cancer that spreads like wildfire. You know, one member hears about it, then someone else hears about it. Um, Then someone puts it on social media and everybody knows about it. And so with something as personal as, you know, mental illness or addiction or discouragement or same-sex attraction, whatever it is, if you don't know about it, then you don't need to know about it unless they come to you directly. And if you do know about it, just, you know, try and support. How can I help you? we love you so much. We're so glad you're here. We're, we're so glad you're safe. Just know that we're praying for you're in our thoughts. Can we bring you some cookies this week? You know, that's, that's what you can do because it really is a, is a tough time for people who go against the status quo um, inadvertently even, but you know, stuff happens in life and you just got to deal with it. And so that was my first Sunday back and the ensuing, like you mentioned, 18 months were we're full of, you know, sleepless nights and, you know, panic attacks and moments when i would just lie on my bedroom floor at night, just shaking because I was going through a panic attack and I was suicidal and I didn't know who to call because all my best friends were on their missions and my parents, you know, God bless them, didn't understand what I was going through. So I couldn't talk to them and my siblings didn't understand. So I couldn't talk to them. Uh, and you know. I love them all so much but you just you don't you don't want to talk to someone who doesn't understand what you're going through especially when they're going to come back at you with questions that serve their own ego and not try to help you feel better. And so I really just I didn't have anybody and I felt, you know, just like I did when I was a 13-year-old kid who just came home from being bullied like what am I going to do? Um what is my purpose? And this actually kind of fueled the fire, which is now the book, the meaning of your mission was the question. What is my mission in life? I thought about that every day, not just what is my Latter-day Saint mission, but what is my mission in life? Cause you're told, you know, from a young age, college mission, marriage career, it's kind of like the the steps. And for me, it was college kind of mission, terrified about marriage, not knowing a career, but maybe mission again. So you know, I, I prayed a lot. I tried to associate myself better with heavenly father's voice, um, because he was, he was my friend, um, and the savior and I, uh, became really good friends, I think during this time period. And I understood for myself for the first time in my life, why people leave the church. And I talk about this in the book and you and I kind of discussed it before we went live was, you don't leave the church because of covenants and commandments. You leave the church because of man-made expectations that no matter how well intentioned come across and make you feel like you're not good enough. And I honestly believe that's why people leave the church, whether they've come home early from a mission, whether they've come out as, you know, homosexual or bisexual, or whether they've just gone through a particularly difficult time and they tell someone about it and they get all of this, well, you need to do this to feel better. You need to do this to go to the temple. You need to do this to go to the celestial kingdom. And so their whole life they're filled with, you're not good enough. Instead of, you know, I love you. Let's work on that relationship with Christ because Christ is the final judge. He's going to help you get there. I can just be, you know, an instrument to love you and to be your friend, but let's really work on that relationship with Christ because he's the one that's going to guide you. And so... You know, I struggled with relationships with my family members. My dad and I had a really hard time um, for about a year of that year and a half, uh, just because you know different expectations and different experiences, and you know it didn't quite translate. Um, you know, we have a great relationship to this day, but you know it was tough. So and nice. yeah, I'm, I I admit that it was just a really tough time, and I tried to I tried to you know work. I got a couple of jobs. Um, I went to go see a therapist and a psychiatrist and got prescribed more medication, um, and therapy saved my life. Um, it really saved my life. It taught me who I was as a son of God. Um, anyone out there who is going through a particularly tough time, who considers, you know, is therapy the right thing? I highly recommend it. Um, just to have someone who understands what you're going through, who can listen to you. Those biweekly visits were the only time in that year and a half that I talked to someone who understood me and who not only said, I understand you, but absolutely you have a mission in this life and you're going to do great things and you're going to be successful. And I don't want that to sound like everyone was judging me or everyone was mean to me or my family, you know, was, was rude. Cause it's not the case at all. It was just having this emotional disability. You want to be able to speak with someone who gets it. And so they really helped spark my recovery. Um, And I saw them for a year and a half and I went back to BYU, Idaho, where I was going to school and, you know, just kind of tried to lie low a little bit. And, you know, you don't see many 20 year olds up there, especially young men, because they're supposed to be serving missions. Um, but I was really grateful for the opportunity that I had to, to do that. And then kind of, a, um, kind of a climax of this story. I was at BYU, Idaho, and I got a call from my sister-in-law one day who said, Hey, did you know that BYU just came out with an internship program in the Baltic States? And I said, Oh, my gosh, no, I had no idea. And she said, Yeah, you have to be a student at BYU. But they will completely take care of all the accommodations. If you want to go do an internship in Estonia. And I thought to myself, Estonia, that was my mission call. Like, oh, my gosh, where do I sign up? And so, you know, by the grace of God, um, I was able to earn my way into BYU. You know, I got the, the right grades and things like that. And I called the Dean of the school for the internship. And he said, you know, just send in your application. We'll get it all taken care of. And I was able to go to Estonia, um, the summer of 2016 and do what God needed me to do. I was able to fulfill that mission that he always had for me. And it was the most beautiful experience I could have ever hoped for. I didn't have a black name tag on, but I was where God needed me to be at the right time. And I worked with the missionaries. I spoke the language. I loved the members. I served in the hospitals there. It was just the most beautiful experience that taught me more about life and who I was as a human being and a a child of God. And it just, it taught me that as long as we're trying to do the right things, um, recently President Nelson said, the Lord loves effort. As long as we're trying to just do the right things, you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to stress about, you know, your prayers and your scripture study and all this stuff. You just have to try your best and put in the effort and the Lord will show you that he needs you in a specific place in a specific time. And I'm just so grateful for that. And, that was, that's, that was my journey those 18 months.
0: How long were you in Estonia for?
1: Three months. So it was a summer, summer internship.
0: It's really fascinating that, (laughs) were you nervous to go to Estonia because it was potentially walking back into, I don't know if you saw that as the source of the pain, or that was the MTC that was the source of the pain. I don't know if you saw this road to healing or was there, were you nervous about going to Estonia?
1: I was more excited than nervous. Um, it was honestly my way of showing myself that I could do it. Um, kind of proving to the haters, you know, quote unquote, that, you know what, it wasn't about homesickness. It wasn't about, I didn't want to do it. It was something completely different. And I just wanted to go and love it and live it and embrace, you know, all the people that I met there and all the experiences that I could. And like I said before, it was just such a beautiful experience. And it, it to this day, it was the mission that the Lord needed me to serve.
0: It's good. Uh, my wife and I were in Estonia. Um, we loved it there. It was one of those cruises yeah. were yeah. on the Baltic Sea and, uh-huh. and we loved um, our experience there. Yeah. I'm sure you went to Tallinn. Yeah, so, we did. It's a gorgeous place. And that's exactly where we went. And we met missionaries there in the hot Square. Yeah. It was kind of shocking. <laughs> um, boy, you said so many things. I hope you realize your gift of communication and your ability to share words. You're sort mm. of Elder Holland-like. You don't <laughs> like me to say that, but you <laughs> have um, Elder Maxwell and Elder Holland-like mm. gifts of communication. Thank you. I really mean that, Drew. And I appreciate that. But you said something, and this is not to be critical of others, or but it's helpful. To, I think you said something. Sometimes people serve their own egos, ego, but don't do things to help you feel better. Hmm. Do you remember you saying that? If you do, can you explain what that means so that people like me don't do that at times?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean we all we all do that as humans, um, and like I mentioned before, I don't hold any animosity towards anybody who, you know, may have come across as judgmental or or pry-ish or anything like that. I, I'm grateful for, you know, the experiences I had, and now I can help other people who didn't have that experience, kind of help people who are going through that experience. And so when I, when I mentioned the, the serving your own ego, I feel like a lot of the time when someone does something that's kind of out of the ordinary or against the status quo, we tend to ask questions, that are really trying to serve ourselves instead of trying to help that person who has gone through that particular experience. Um, like for example, you know, the, the who, what, where, when, why questions, yeah. um, for, for the mission, it was, you know, when are you going back out? Why did you come home? Those questions had nothing to do with me. It had to do with them trying to know what was going on with me. Um, you know take someone who maybe has you know same sex attraction you know when did this all start you know why is this happening stuff like that you know does nothing to serve a better purpose for the person who's experienced it all it does is give more information to the person who's trying to fill their own bucket and who maybe will is asking those questions so that they can go home and tell somebody else and i'm definitely not perfect i've i've done it before and i probably still do it um But to those listening, myself included, I think that when we really try to understand somebody, it should come from a place of, you know, I love you. I don't understand what you're going through exactly. But if you ever need someone to talk to, I'm here for you. If you ever need a friend, um, let me know. And I think that, you know, even some people just don't want to talk about it as much. Um, but when we ask questions, especially about things that are more taboo or less understood, just really try to come across with love. You know, I'm here for you. I love you. I'm proud of you for what you've done with your life. I'm really excited for your future. Let's go grab a bite to eat. And then in that personal one-on-one setting, then maybe you can ask those questions. So if you don't mind me asking kind of what kind of happened with your journey, I'd love to know more. Not to, you know, but to help other people try and understand, because I know some people don't really get it and I'd love to understand for myself. And so it's kind of breaking that barrier, starting with love and then being their friend. And I promise you that as you do those things, they'll come forward with it. You won't have to dig into them to try and get information. They'll feel comfortable telling you that information because really when it's ironic, when people go through these experiences They want to tell people about it because they want to feel affirmed and they want to feel loved. They're just so scared because they don't want to feel judged. And so they hold it in, they keep it in until they can tell like a therapist or somebody about it. Um, But especially, you know, parents and siblings just come across with a feeling of love. I'm here for you. I'm not going to judge you. And then what can I do for you?
0: Great answer. Talk about, um, I'm a parent and not a perfect parent and your parents haven't been perfect um, like I wouldn't have been and haven't been. But what things have they done that were particularly helpful? And this is sort of you talking to other parents that are have a situation that's sort of out of their expertise that's in the mental health area. And a lot of parents are better at the physical health, broken yeah, arms, right. sort of the things that can be diagnosed with an x-ray. And then they're in a situation that's so completely new to them. Mm-hmm. advice, and this is, you know, things your parents did well, or advice for parents that are trying to parent someone in your space.
1: Absolutely. That's a great question because I, I want parents to feel this message. In fact, I think the book that I wrote is a great resource for parents because it tells my experience of dealing with these taboo issues that aren't really understood. And so hopefully if parents, you know, read it, they'll be able to help their children, you know, their nieces, their nephews, their friends, um, going through similar experiences. But when it came to my parents, um, you know, we had our ups and downs, we had our struggles, but something that they always did was they respected my decisions. Um, even if at times they were trying to lean me towards a certain decision, when I made the decision for myself, they still loved me. They still cared for me. They still, you know, invited me to live with them. You know, they, You know, they didn't charge me rent, you know, all this stuff that, you know, parents do, um, they were there for me. And I think just for, you know, it really depends on your child as well, because some children like to be, you know, spoken to some, like they'd be left alone for me. I I wanted to be left alone just because I was trying to process everything. And so my parents were really, um, respectful of that. They kind of let me do my own thing and figure it out for myself along with, you know, Taking me to my therapy visits and and just trying to to be there for me and so I think it's on a, a really individual basis, um, you know, depending on who you're trying to care for. But I would just offer the advice of kind of know who you're taking care of, know what they need, ask them what they need. If they want to be left alone, then sorry, you got to leave them alone for a little bit. Um, if they want to go get an ice cream cone, you know, take them to go get an ice cream cone. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you don't understand what they're going through, pick up a book on it and read a little bit about it or, you know, research it a little bit or try and find someone else's story because that can only help and aid you in helping them.
0: Uh, a lot of the advice you're giving for people I th- is not yes or no questions. They're open-ended questions from a position of wanting to really understand you hmm. versus sort of, I call it maybe just... E- you know, for, but for other, you know, for their reasons. So I love the suggestions you're giving for people to ask open-ended questions about how you're feeling, what I can do for you and keep it focused on them. Yeah, definitely. Good advice. I'm going to read a kind of a long quote that I re- I don't read this maybe, but once every 20 or 30 podcasts, but <laughs> here it is anyway. It's from Henry Norwin, um, a celibate Catholic priest over the last few few years, I've become increasingly aware that true healing mostly takes place through the sharing of weaknesses. Mostly, we are so afraid of our weaknesses that we hide them at all costs and make them unavailable to others, but often to ourselves. And I would say, I'm interjecting here, that mental health is not a weakness. Mm. Um, and in this way, we end up living double lives, even against our own desires, one life in which we present ourselves to the outside world. ourselves and to god as the person who is in control in another life which we feel insecure doubtful confused or anxious or totally out of control the split between these two lives can cause us a lot of suffering i have become increasingly aware of the importance of overcoming this great chasm between these two lives and become more and more aware that facing with others the reality of our existence can be the beginning of true true free life. It is amazing in my own life that true friendship and community became possible to agree that I was able to share my weaknesses with others. Let's see if I can scroll. Um, often I, oh, I scrolled like 20 pages. So, so much for that idea. <laughs> we'll leave. It's a cliffhanger. <laughs> but it's basically what you're doing in your book, and your life ministry, Drew, is sharing of weaknesses is something culturally men don't do. Hmm. Um, we hold that in. We present an outward front of strength and courage right. and all those cultural attributes that we assign to men and women. I, it's not a men thing, but mm. what you're being open about your emotional health on this podcast and in your book, I think helps you, but it also helps us all do better. Mm. Thank you. Talk really about that. Um, those that are suicidal. You had some feelings of suicide during this 18 months. What would you say to others that are feeling that kind of darkness, they're worried that to pull them out of that or give them hope.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a really sensitive topic. And I, I have the utmost love and, you know, respect for, for those that feel that way um, because it's very real. And I think that a lot of people, when they, hear of someone who's committed suicide or is thinking of suicide that they just want to give up. Um, when in actuality, and this is coming from my experience, if someone is considering suicide in any capacity, it's because they believe that their pain has become too much for them to handle. It has nothing to do with giving up, um, or, you know, trying to leave this world earlier than they want. It really has to do with they can't see any other way out um, of the particular episode that they're in. And I think that this is something that I want to offer to those who are suicidal or helping those who are suicidal is that it's just that it's an episode. Um, The clouds will eventually disperse and they'll move on and there's going to be sunshine again. And so If you're in those moments, the big thing that I would advise is try and find a sense of connection with somebody, not your phone, not Netflix, not video games, an actual person, whether that's, you know, the suicide hotline to call somebody or whether that's somebody, um, is a friend and believe me, it takes a lot of courage to reach out when you're suicidal because you feel like immediately someone's going to judge you or, you know, call the cops on you or something. But most people, if they get that phone call, they'll drop whatever they're doing and they'll run to your aid. And so I just want people to understand, you know, don't be afraid to call somebody if you're feeling this way. Um, Reach out to me on Facebook if you're feeling this way and I'll help you uh, because we need you here and you have a mission and a purpose in life. Even if you can see nothing but darkness right now, I promise you that you are needed and you're loved. And you are worthy to feel all of the great feelings that, you know, you can feel in life. And this, you know, these moments you're going through will pass. It came to pass. Um, And so, you know, I love my brothers and sisters that go through these experiences because they have a greater capacity to feel and to understand, you know, others that do it. And so, yeah, I just say, you know, just try and hold on a little bit longer, talk to somebody and you're going to do great
0: things. It's a really thoughtful answer. Um, thank you for that segment, Drew. I'm gonna f- I am going gonna—I found the rest of this quote, listeners. If Great. <laughs> kind of, of <laughs> bouncing back on me, but I'll just end with these, the end of this quote. Um, as long as I try to convince myself or others of my independence, a lot of my energy is invested in building up my own false self. But once I am able to truly confess my profound dependence on others and on God— I can come in touch with the true self and real community and healing can develop. Hmm. And I look at your journey with a therapist and your relationship with God and sort of, I think he uses the term confessing weakness. I don't want to paint mental illness as a weakness, hmm. um, or but just a journey that is outside of your control that you're working to solve. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, but you need people in your life that kind of kind of walk that road with you and have the skills and the friendship and the expertise and talk about let's transition. You've kind of mentioned this. What's God's role in this process? Cause here you are wanting to overcome anxiety and depression. Um, does God take that from you? Um, does the, can the atonement take that from you or how, cause some people might, I mean, just, is I sometimes look at that as like a broken arm where Mm. the atonement is not going to take your broken arm from you. I I don't know if it's that binary. Help, any thoughts on that for our listeners, Drew? Yeah, well,
1: first off, Christ is the divine potter. That's one of my favorite names for him because he, he really can shape us and sculpt us if we're malleable and if we're willing to come unto him and mental illness is, I think something that Christ understands very well. Uh, You know, who knows what afflictions he, he dealt with in life, but, you know, I do know that he liked to be alone. I do know that he, you know, he sought solitude and mountaintops and he loved to think and ponder and, and pray. And to me, that's a sensitive guy. And I think that people who struggle with mental or emotional challenges tend to be more sensitive. They tend to want to, you know, stay away a little bit from the crowd and, and focus on doing their own thing. And so I would just, I'm really grateful that the savior doesn't take things from us when we ask because, you know, looking back, if he had taken it away from me, I wouldn't have had any of these experiences that have made me who I am today um, and made me capable of feeling the pain that others feel. And I think that's why he doesn't, you know, necessarily take away the temptation or take away the sorrow or take away the the pain right away is because there's a deeper purpose that he knows about that we don't. And that's, you know, just going back to what we were talking about earlier, that's when we need to really just hold on a little bit longer, keep putting forth that effort, because I believe that he won't take away the affliction from us. There's there's certain instances where, you know, we can receive a blessing and, you know, miracle happens and it's, you know, it's taken away. But I'd say 99% of the time he's given that to us because he knows one day we'll thank him for it. And hopefully we can realize that he's doing it not to us, but for us.
0: I think you've answered this question, but do you feel like emotional illness is a spiritual weakness?
1: No, not at all. I think that, like you mentioned before, mental illness is not mental weakness. Just like physical illness doesn't mean physical weakness because we get past it eventually. We move on from it um, or we compensate it through another means or avenue. And so, no, I think that, you know, our spirit is part of our body. um, And when our body is afflicted, you know, it can, you know, affect our spirit. But I think that when we're emotionally or mentally weak or ill, that should be when we really try to double down spiritually because the spirit can thrive during those moments when we really try to focus on our relationship with divinity, you know, focus on nature, focus on things bigger than ourselves to try and gain some perspective.
0: I've learned I'm more of an introvert than I realized I was in a podcast a long time ago when I heard someone talk. And I love what you said about Christ and that he'd like to be alone. Um, I don't know if that means he's an introvert um, or as much as that's just was part of his ministry and part of staying emotionally healthy or part of how he was wired is the needing need to just take care of him at times so that he could perform his ministry. Yeah. And whether that was spiritual preparation or emotional recharge or whatever that was, you make a good point there, Drew, that at times Mm. he wasn't 24-7 on— the job so to speak yeah <laughs> it's diminishing his ministry but he he needed to take care of himself at times what an interesting idea
1: yeah that actually um that came from my therapist actually when i when i was in therapy he uh he had a a portrait or a picture in his office of the savior calming the sea you know we we know the story of you know the the apostles on the on the boat and you know, there's like a tempest raging around them and they go and, you know, they they go to the Savior and they say, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And the Savior here obviously stands up and he, he you know, says, peace be still. And he calms, he calms the waters. But something that my therapist pointed out to me was what the Savior was doing before he calmed the sea was he was resting. He was taking a nap. The apostles had to kind of, wake him up. And it taught me a critical lesson in life that we can take a nap, that we can relax and recharge because the savior of the world who had the greatest mission of all of us, if he was able to rest and recharge and take a nap, then so can we, and we'll move on and we'll do even better at, you know, fulfilling our responsibilities.
0: Talk about where you're married now. You've been married for two years. Um, How old are you? I've never asked that on the 24. So you're 24. You're a young guy. You've been married for two years. In these dark times, that 18 months, did you think, did you self-conclude that no woman will want me? I'm damaged goods. I am not whatever thoughts were in your mind. Um, And why did she fall in love with you? And I'm speaking for her. Why does she... I'm guessing this part of who you are is something she loves about you Hmm. um, and recognizes the gifts that have come into your life and the things that uh, this experience make you a better husband and a better father and a better person to others. And I'm assuming this is part of the reason she fell in love with you. It's not like she fell in love with you and there's this little part of you that she wishes didn't Mm -hmm. exist and hope will go away. My guess is she loves this part about you too because it makes you partly who you are, speak about, it's kind of a long question, but.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, just like you said, it was difficult for me coming home because I definitely thought that, um, you know, you have those questionnaires that they fill out in young women's, you know, what do you want in a future husband? And one of the top ones is a return missionary check. And I didn't consider myself a return missionary. I just considered myself an early return missionary. And, you know, obviously that perspective has changed because I know, you know, what I did and who I am and, you know, things like that. But I definitely had that fear, uh, which is, you know, surrounded, you know, a difficult part of my recovery was, you know, is there going to be someone out there who understands my story enough to accept me for me? And when I met my wife, uh, she's a hairstylist. She cut my hair and I loved it and went back and asked her out and we went on a date. And I when I was at BYU, you know, going on dates, that was one of the first things that I said when I went on a date, date with somebody was because if they didn't get that part about me, then they weren't gonna get anything else. Because it was such a critical part of my journey in life and my mission that if they didn't understand, you know mental illness or they didn't understand coming home early from a mission and they judged that I knew that it wasn't going to work. And there were quite a few individuals who I got that, you know, that sense from, but with my wife, we were, we went on our first date and we were just kind of eating dinner and I said, yeah, so I actually came home early from my mission for, you know, anxiety and depression. Uh, and you know, I had, you know, these different experiences, And she just listened and then she said, that's cool. Um, She said, yeah, I mean, my family's crazy too. Or, you know, she said something to kind of break the ice a little bit where I felt like she kind of understood what I was saying. And then she went on to tell me about her mission and, you know, difficulties that she had and um, how it was hard for her to deal with these things. And she focused on who I was um, in the moment instead of who I was, you know, three years ago. And she just saw me for me. She saw me as someone who, you know, was working hard. He was trying to do the right things and not somebody who had this little blip on, you know, his timeline that said, you know, came home early because she didn't care about that. And to this day, she tends to just not really pay a lot of attention to it. She sees, you know, what I've done as more important than an experience that I had a long time ago. And so I'm really grateful for that.
0: It doesn't surprise me, Drew, that you, knowing this book and who you are, that in the dating process, you would tell somebody pretty early in the dating <laughs> process. And I love the way you just said that. They just might as well know this is who I am. And I love the, that's an insight to me on just where you are in your self-confidence about who you are mm. and that you're not, you and that you love you mm. and you love this part about you and you're very self-confident. This is who you are. And it's nothing to be embarrassed about. It's mm. nothing that makes your life mission different or less manly or less potentially attractive to your future wife. And I just admire the personal work you've done to get to that. Mm. Thank you. Um, and I think you're teaching us how to do that with relying on Christ and having good people in your life and the role of therapy. I saw a co- well, I don't know. It was on Twitter. It said, I, sometimes we need Jesus and the therapist. <laughs> that's true. Um, and sometimes that's very true. Um, and you, and you've learned that. And, um, but we need both at times and that's not a sign of weakness. And so I would guess if you came on this podcast every 10 years um, you would continue to tell stories for the rest of your life about ministering opportunities that only are possible to you um, because of these 62 days in the MTC and these 18 months afterwards. Definitely. And as a local leader, as a father, as a husband, as an author, as a speaker, this pivotal time in your life, and it probably started earlier with being bullied and separation anxiety, and you probably haven't completely solved the anxiety and depression but it's just pivotal to your life ministry. Mm. And and I just think, you know, and you've kind of hit this, you're not coming at this at age fifty and saying, okay, I finally gotta be who I am. <laughs> That's what I admire. That's why I think Heavenly Father is sending some of his very best children for these days. And you're give me hope in the future to improve our culture and to create and to create more empathy and understanding and less judgment. So you just fill the balm of Gilead. Mm as you come home from your mission, you've done the very best you can. And I want to get to a point where we sometimes rank order early release missionaries. This is back to your point about, we want to ask why. Mm. And maybe within that spectrum, people that come home for a physical illness is the most lot, most understood mental illness. But those that come home because of belated confession or messing up on their mission, I hope we don't treat them any different than anybody Right? It's not our job to sort of go, oh, wow, you came home for the worst reason. You yeah. actually messed up yes. or you messed up and didn't fess up. So now you're coming home. And it's just probably none of our business yeah. unless they get to a point where you suggested that you can sense their love so much that in a one-on-one situation that you probably want to tell them the story. Yeah. And it's healing to tell the stories. People do want to tell the story if they feel it's a trusted friend and it's not someone that's just looking for the inside scoop so they can share it with everybody or to lift their own. Sometimes information becomes power. And if we know the inside scoop about something that's sort of big news in our neighborhood, (laughs) it lifts us in a way that is not the way we should lift ourselves. Right. Um, Absolutely. So true. And I'm recognizing priesthood leaders at times I really admire my priesthood leaders, and I think this is not a minor, a um, major problem. But even priesthood leaders sometimes get inside scoop on a confession or a ward mm. situation, and and maybe mention that inappropriately. And I've heard some really har- harmful experiences where someone's o- opened up to a a priesthood leader, a local leader, or young men's, young women's, and shared something that then is not held in confidence. So in those yeah. situations, we've got to make sure we really hold all that in confidence. Right. Um, any other thoughts that come to your mind? We're kind of getting to the end, but just um, thoughts you want to share that we haven't gotten to. And you can think about that, but I, <laughs> I sometimes ask two questions at once. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, the last phrase of your book is one of my favorite phrases right now. It's to know you're enough. Hmm. So you could talk about that or whatever you want to talk about.
1: Thank you. Well, this has been an amazing opportunity um, and I'm really grateful again for the platform because like you said, I, I, my, my mission in life is to help you discover and live yours. That's what I've decided. To anyone who's listening to this podcast who feels like they're not good enough, like they don't measure up, that they've gone too far, sinned too much, or done something that is, you know, against the status quo in any way, you do have a mission in life. Uh, This life isn't a one and done where you sin once and you're done, or you fall short once and you're done. What matters in life is, is getting up after we fall down. And I just want anybody who's listening to this or who decides to pick up a copy of the book to know that I wrote it through my lens as an early return missionary But the application is universal that what I share and the principles and the lessons can really help you in your life and in your circumstances or in somebody, somebody's life whom you love or care about. And I tried to be vulnerable and I tried to, like you said with that quote, to kind of share some of my experiences and my struggles with the intent that hopefully it'll help you in your life feel more understood or understand somebody else. So I'm really grateful for the opportunity and you are enough. Um, Whatever you're going through, you were born that way. You were made that way. No one can take that away from you. And God will help you fulfill and live your mission as you continue to come unto him.
0: Do you think you can do anything to take you outside of God's love? No,
1: we're, we're forever in his love. Uh, And I I just, yeah, he, he loves us and, you know, we can stray away from him, but he'll always be close to us.
0: Do you have a favorite general authority? Um, We love them all. (laughs) So I hate to ask, I don't want to imply that some are less loved than others, but do you have a favorite general authority that just resonates with you that you just feel I'm enough around him, even though I know I still need to grow and improve that just his tone, or a female leader of our church that Mm -hmm. just resonates with you?
1: I'd say Elder Holland or Elder Uchtdorf. They just, I don't know, that's like the typical probably um, answer, but for me personally, uh, both of them have played a particular role in my life. Um, When I got home, I wrote a letter to Elder Holland, which he responded to, which was a big deal for me, uh, just basically telling me that he loved me and he was proud of me for even, you know, going through what I did. And then the, when I got home general conference was a few days after and, and elder Uchtdorf gave his talk, the gift of grace, which was all about how, you know, we're enough because the savior is enough. And so both of those experiences kind of solidified my, (laughs) my love for those two apostles. So I'm really grateful for them.
0: I've, I've loved elder Holland and elder Uchtdorf. Um, Elder Maxwell is older than, Mm -hmm. you know, your day. Oh, I love him too, yeah. But my wife is listening to everything he's ever said, and it (laughs) seems like you're aware of him. But I uh, love—they're not teaching different doctrine. Um, They're not making up doctrine, but they're teaching that doctrine in a way that I think gives us hope and makes us feel good enough. I always feel like when we feel we're enough, we are more likely to stay closer with God and make better personal improvement. Totally. Sometimes I get a little overwhelmed at Conference Drew when I, in fact, I saw an article that was all a list of all the things we were asked to do from all the conference talks. (laughs) Wow. And I didn't realize everything there, but it kind of validated sometimes how I feel after conference that there's such a list of things I'm supposed to do. And I'm usually close enough. I don't know how to word this. I'm usually close enough with my own sense of mission and the spirit and the promptings that I generally know. Sometimes I need a real rebuke and I don't want to rule that out, but often that can be a little overwhelming for me. Mm. Um, And sometimes the phrases perfect obedience, exact obedience are unattainable, even at 59 that it sometimes (laughs) makes me want to throw in the towel. So I love what you're teaching here. And, um, and I love I've also loved Elder Holland's vulnerability, the broken vessel talk. Oh, amazing. One of my regrets is, as a singles word bishop, the last year or so, I was seeing a therapist. Mm. Um, It's only, I've seen a therapist twice in my life and my emotional gas tank was getting pretty low. Mm. And I thought I would, I I never told any YSA that the bishop was seeing a therapist (laughs) because I thought that would diminish um, my role in their lives Mm. And the expectations of this strong, capable, powerful, firing all Sindler's leaders. But if I had it appropriately talked about that, Mm. I think more would have opened up to me. Mm. Um, Just like you're safe. People are, because of your book and your social media, and I encourage everybody to find Drew Young on Facebook. I just know you're safe. Mm. And people can say, I may not and they'll talk to you about all the topics. Right. So if you've got one of your friends that's gay, yeah. he's more likely to talk to you because of your just because of your personal journey with the emotional health and the Christ-like attributes and the compassion and understanding that you communicate says I could probably talk to Drew about this. Hmm. I hope so. And so I, I think so. that's one of the principles of ministry and that's why I think we all feel like if we saw Elder Holland at Costco, and I think he was at Costco right at the beginning of the pandemic, according to a picture <laughs> I saw on social oh. media, we'd all feel like, and we feel that in his talks, that we he would love us where we are hmm. and he would give us hope. And that's what I think Christ did in his mission. Absolutely. And I think your generation is better at that. So hmm. you have a unique life mission, and we heal each other as we're honest in appropriate ways. Um I'm going to read a quote that I read more frequently that's from the same Henry Norwin and it's a minister service. And that's you drew a minister and all of us will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be led out of the desert by someone who's never been there. Hmm. So, you know, the desert, (laughs) when you talk about, sleepless nights curled up on the floor of your bed you know after your mission and the hopelessness you feel that's a desert and that's Mm. tremendously wounding but you know this desert and you become the wounded healer in your book and in your social media presence and your and I know you're writing a second book so you have a really unique life mission Mm. Um, thank you and then I'm going to leave you the kind of final word here in a second, just to any final things. And I want you to make sure to tell our listeners your website, but you circled something. You've said something that I haven't thought about for a long time. And you said this phrase and it brought tears to my eyes that he's the divine potter. And Rock Frampton at Hunter high School is a pottery instructor. And I've seen him on social media, making all these things. And I, that visual imagery came into my mind as you talked about the divine Potter and the principle there that we are meant to be molded individually for who we are. Yes. And that's beautiful. And that just touched me so much. Mm. Any final thoughts and make sure to sh- send us to your website.
1: Well, once again, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to share my story. I, I love, um, I love the mission that God has, you know, made for me, even if it wasn't my plan A or plan B or plan C was the plan that he had for me. And I'm so grateful for that. And, um, like you mentioned, if anyone is interested in in learning more about my story or learning how to help and aid in, in the, um, advocacy for mental health or, you know, issues that are a little bit, uh, misunderstood or, or misrepresented, feel free to, you know, follow me on social media or check out my website, drewbyyoung.com and, and pick up a copy of my book. If you'd like to pre-order it, you can even use the, uh, the code that my publisher has, has let me use, which is mission. Um, if you use that code, you'll get 20% off. So I feel, I feel bad kind of promoting it, but, uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity to, and, um, just know that you are enough and you're going to do great things with your life.
0: Thank you, Drew Young, for being on our podcast. Um, Thank you, Hank Smith, for all the work you're doing providing a Ford. Thank you, Jane Clayson Johnson, um, for talking about your own personal journey. Jane's been on the podcast. She's episode 100. Um, If anybody would like to listen to her podcast. And thank you, our listeners, for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love with Drew Young and Richard Osler.